Well, good evening. I'd like to welcome you all to this panel discussion on the next financial crisis. Um, I think that this is a topic that uh, all thoughtful people should now be considering uh, going forward. Uh, we've been now five years since the last crisis. A lot of things have been done to strengthen and extend the financial regulatory system. But the question is whether there are new risks that are lurking out there, whether they're being recognized, and whether the regulatory authorities and the risk managers in the private sector financial institutions have uh, the knowledge and the insight to, to address them as they come up. And so I think we'll have a very, very interesting uh, evening here. My name is Malcolm Knight. I've had some experience in the public sector as um, the general manager and chief executive officer of the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, the Central Bankers Bank, as senior deputy governor of the Bank of Canada, and as a senior official at the IMF, and also in the private sector where I've been uh, vice chairman of Deutsche Bank and a member of the board of directors of Swiss Re reinsurance company. So I've seen this financial crisis from a little bit from both sides of the street, and I'll be very interested to hear what our panelists have to say. Before we get started, there, there are two announcements I need to make. Please do put your mobile de devices on mute um, so that we don't get any interruptions from that side. The other um, announcement I'd like to make is that uh, this, um, uh, when this panel discussion ends, there will be immediately following it a reception to which everybody here is uh, invited. It'll be in the LSE Senior Common Room, which is in this building. You go up to the fifth floor, either take the elevators or walk up, whichever is your inclination. And uh, when you get up there, it's to your right through the, the senior dining room, the senior common room. And as I say, everyone who's here uh, for this uh, event is welcome. Um, I, we have really an excellent uh, panel here today. First of all, at my, at my far right, Professor Julia Black is the director of the LSE Law Department's Law and Financial Markets Project. Uh, and she's a research associate in the Center for the Analysis of Risk, uh, which is uh, based here at, uh, at the LSE. And she's written extensively on the impact of the global financial crisis on the financial system and its regulation. Uh, I think everyone, many of you in this room will know Charles Goodhart, who's an emeritus professor at the LSE and has had a long and distinguished uh, career in both the public sector and in uh, academia. Most recently uh, and currently, he's the director of the Financial Regula Regulation Research Program of the LSE's Financial Markets Group. And immediately to my right is John Danielson, who's a reader in finance at the LSE and is the co-director of the Systemic Risk Center here at the school. John writes extensively 
on complex issues of risk management in today's uh, integrated uh, financial system. And uh, the uh, Systemic Risk Center is financed by a five-year grant from the uh, Economic and Social Research Council, and it's doing and will do, I think, very important work uh, in looking into this question. So I'm going to ask each speaker to take about 10 minutes to um, make some uh, initial comments, and then we'll develop some themes and issues that can be discussed. You'll all get a chance to uh, put your hands up later on in the session if you want to, um, to, uh, to ask questions. And let me, um, me, uh, let me start with you, uh, Julia Black. Uh, the, uh, you're uh, one of the world's experts on financial regulation, and we're seeing for the first time in the, um, in the aftermath of this crisis a lot of discussion not only of microprudential supervision but also of macroprudential regulation. A lot of uh, hope is being placed on this combination in recognizing vulnerabilities and, and, uh, and addressing them when they come up. And I'd be very interested in your thoughts on what are the strengths and weaknesses of that new framework. Okay. Thank you. And thank you very much to everybody for coming along this evening. Um, I think the, there are a range of issues here as to how, how the, the system um, of regulation joins up at a global level, and both horizontally at that global level and then the interactions with that at both the regional and the national level. And the ability, therefore, also at each of those levels for the macro prudential, the whole aggregate picture, to join up with the micro, what's happening in individual financial institutions. At the global financial regulation, at the global level, for those of you who aren't quite so familiar with this as um, uh, some of us have had to become, then you have a, a number of different regulatory committees. You have one that looks at securities, which has got 130-odd members, IOSCO. You've got one that looks at insurance companies, got 140-odd members. And then you have um, one that looks at banks, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, which is G20 plus a few. And then ostensibly coordinating... This is something called the Financial Stability Board, which has all of those organizations as members, plus the IMF, the World Bank, OECD, European Commission, European Central Bank, um, plus G20, plus members. One of the issues about this structure is it's quite lopsided, okay, in terms of the membership. Um, And that has implications both for its legitimacy, um, but also for its functionality, how well it can actually function both in terms of the ability, whether or not people are going to accept what comes out of those committees um, as countries for, for setting their agenda for financial regulation, but also in terms of preoccupations and what different um, groups are looking at. And one of the main issues is that your main coordinating body, the G20, um, the FSB and the G20, is just that. It is the G20 countries. You have developing countries there as an, in consultative fora, but they're not really there at the table. They're not there at the policy-making table, which means that you don't necessarily get full sensitivity to their needs. You don't also get the full kind of antennae um, alerts as to what's going on in those different countries and, moreover, what's going on in the markets within those countries because the membership of the FSB itself is quite central bank-dominated. So if you were to look actually at where new activity is occurring, where new markets are developing, 
than its exchanges in developing countries. There was an article in the FT today. Those of you who are my students will know I always say there's an article in the FT today. Um, they don't even pay me to say that. Um, which talked about DFID doing a partnership with the London Stock Exchange to advise on setting up exchanges in three or four African countries. Nigeria, ten, um, Tanzania, I think, Kenya. So in other words, there's a big you know, push for um, activity in those areas and the ability of the global structure to, to really see what's going on and anticipate uh, where, where things might be coming up that need attention, I think, is uh, hampered by the, the, the overall structure of the system. I think one of the other issues, coming back to the issue about macroprudential, and macroprudential is um, the join-up between them. The idea about macroprudential regulation is that it's like the, the weatherman that tells you when a storm's coming and whether you need to put your umbrellas. And ideally, then, the micro-prudential supervisors go around to the banks and say, go and put up your umbrellas, okay? So very broadly. Obviously, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, but the, you, the ability to have the connection, really, between macro and micro-prudential supervision um, is, can be sorted at the national level, is an issue at the regional level, uh, as we're seeing at the moment within the the Eurozone, and becomes even more complicated once you get up to the global level. Um, and so, really, the ability of the system, as I say, as, at the global level as a whole, to really anticipate where things might be arising and possibly then to respond when they do um, is very, very sluggish, shall we say. Thanks very much, Julia. Charles, you've probably seen as many financial crises as... Uh, as anybody and had to handle some of them. I guess uh, the question I have for you is, is the system so much better regulated now that we're not going to have another crisis and we can all go home? Or if there is going to be a crisis, what are your thoughts on how it will be different next time? Well, okay, let me start by biting the hand that introduced me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very North American viewpoint that the financial crisis was five years ago. If you live in Europe, the peak of the financial crisis was actually in July, August 2012, before Mario Draghi uh, introduced the OMT, uh, doing whatever it takes to hold the Eurozone together. And if you lived in, in, in India, um, the crisis was really uh, late last year. Now, I don't think that the kind of crisis that we had in 2008, 2009, which was a very typical property and credit-related boom-bust cycle, uh, is likely to recur for quite a length of time, and I'll go into that in a moment. Uh, the financial managers, financial leaders of almost all the banks and financial institutions, because of what's been going on in the last five years or so, and with regulation tightening up as well, have become very risk-averse and are deleveraging wildly, which adds to the sluggish recovery, but it does mean that they are not undertaking the kind of uh, massive overexpansion that led to the crisis in 2007-2008. And if we do have uh, a financial crisis in the next few years. Um, my guess is that a very considerable element of that uh, will be political mishandling. To take a couple of current examples as we sit here, uh, Argentina and Turkey. 
and in particular, if there is to be uh, a continuation uh, of the crisis in the Eurozone, the Eurozone periphery, it will probably come about as a result of uh, political miscalculation uh, rather than market or economic pressures, which have largely been resolved uh, by the actions that the ECB and Mario Draghi undertake. Um, there are other problems out there, again, which are quite largely political. Uh, how the Chinese leadership will manage the political problems of shifting from a business model driven by investment and exports to one driven by sustainable consumption uh, is yet to be seen. Uh, I don't think that the unwind from the current massively and aggressively expansionary monetary policies that will be undertaken by uh, Janet Yellen and Mark Carney over the next two or three years will of itself uh, lead to any crisis. It will lead to difficulties, perhaps particularly in emerging markets, uh, but I don't see that as being a particularly crisis uh, experience. Now, um, as Malcolm noted at the beginning, um, I've uh, lived through three major crises, financial crises, uh, in the UK. Uh, 74, 75, 91, 92, 2007, 2008. And all of them uh, were driven by absolutely standard, bog-standard, uh, bad retail banking lending excessively on commercial and, to a lesser extent, re residential property with massive great credit expansion uh, lying behind that. Um, I'm actually going to give you the date of the next crisis because if you take those last three ones, 74, 75, 91, 92, and 2007, 2008, you will note that they were all divided by 17 years. So mark down in your calendars <laughs> that the next crisis is going to occur in 2025-2026. And actually that's not a bad prediction because it fits in what you might describe as behavior. And what normally happens in a property, commercial real estate, housing boom and bust is that after the bust it takes about five years for people to recover. Then you have, because people still remember what went on before, about sort of eight years or so of pretty steady recovery with prices rising somewhat faster than the rate of inflation. And so if you have actually bought into housing, you've done very well. Moreover, the new leadership in the financial institutions will be those who have made a very large amount of money by buying on any housing or property price dip in the meantime, and after they've made their money by betting that housing price increases and residential and commercial real estate increases will go on, they are regarded as wonder kids, and they are now in charge of their banks, and they go on doing it. Uh, Fred Goodwin and Dick Fold are simply two examples. Uh, by the way, if you really want to understand what went on, do read Michael Lewis's The Big Short, which is probably the most entertaining book on the crisis around. So um, the, the likelihood that the next crisis will simply be in the UK 
will simply be another property boom bust uh, remains. And very little that has been done on the regulatory side uh, will actually deal with that. Because there has been a tendency to blame the past crisis uh, on the bad behavior of speculative investment bankers. Now, I don't deny that there's been quite a lot of that bad behavior. But frankly, it wasn't the source of the crisis. The source of the crisis was a standard retail-type property boom-bust along with credit. And there has been nothing done uh, in terms of trying to reform housing finance that will actually make that uh, less likely in future. Moreover, uh, the Vickers Commission report with ring fencing in some ways is going to make the next housing property boom-bust even more devastating than the last. Because having separated out the investment banking part, what is left for the retail bank which is now ring-fenced? And you will find, if you look at their balance sheets, that something like 85 to 90% of what they will do will be lending based on property one way or another. So that they are much more fixated, much more concentrated in the property market than they were in the past when they were much more universal banks. So that when the 2025 boom bust comes along, which I won't see, uh, but you will, uh, it may be a very nasty piece of work altogether because it, uh, it could be even worse than the last one. So we certainly haven't got to the end of crises. Uh, they will continue. They always have. They always will. And for a long time, they've taken exactly the same kind uh, of general structure. Thanks, Charles. Lots of food for thought. And we've all taken down um, your, your date of 2025-26 to um, get liquid and, and get into high high-quality financial instruments. But we'll talk a little bit more about uh, those aspects in a minute. John Danielson, um, you're you're doing a lot of studying of of systemic risk, and particularly the way the regulatory reform gives more sweeping prerogatives and responsibilities to the regulators. And... uh, Requires gives them much more of a responsibility to uh, identify emerging risks, uh, which is something that we've thought in the past should be done by the private sector and by the marketplace and wasn't done effectively in the last crisis. But the question is whether the regulators can do that. Is there, is there too much of a burden being placed on the regulata- regulators by the reforms of the global architecture that the G20 has been fostering? Absolutely. And the one thing we do know know about crisis is that one will happen. It's a matter of when and how, but not if. Now, the sad thing is we know quite a lot about why crises happen. And, uh, of course, enhancing that understanding is exactly our objective at the Systemic Risk Center. Now, studies show that all crises are the same fundamentally, only the details differ. And with Charles's 117-year frequency, if you look at the OECD countries, the, our research shows that crises happen once every 42 years, making the UK an unusually crisis-prone country. 
Now, however, there's an interesting footnote to be had. Has that tendency to have a lot of crisis hurt or helped in economic growth? And I suspect the UK will have performed quite well in spite of those crises, which also points to the direction that maybe it's not something we want to prevent altogether. Now, however, if you understand the crisis fundamentally so well, and we understood this at least for a century and a half, why can't we prevent them? Well, there are at least two reasons for this. First of all, financial regulations, they focus on the details, not on the fundamentals, and the details change. Regulators, they tend to look at what happened in the past and try to prevent the past from happening in the future. The bankers see it differently. They look at the regulations as a manual for where the authorities are not looking and hence where to take risk. (laughs) Regulations are inherently backward-looking. The regulators do suffer from what we can call the successful general syndrome fighting the last war. I sometimes think of the authorities... Uh, as the French designers of the Marchinot line before World War II, and then the bankers of the generals who were behind the Blitzkrieg. Now, the, the reason why, the second reason why crises are so hard to prevent is if you want to borrow an American phrase, we want to have our cake and eat it too. We are now treated to the spectacle of national leaders proclaiming in public that they want to clamp down on risk-taking, and then they, at the same time, they direct the finance ministers in the closed smoke-filled rooms to do exactly the opposite. They want more risk. Now, and at the end of the day, we cannot have a safe banking system and have banks that lend to small and medium-sized enterprises. And when it comes to politics, credit beats safety. And that is why we have so many crises. Now, that is why, in our view, that financial regulations should be more explicit about what can be done and what cannot be done, and focus more on the fundamentals of the problems rather than the details of the problems. And, by the way, if you go back to this crisis, we are seeing more activity in the regulation space than we've seen since the 1930s or even forever. Now, the authorities are now involved in every aspect of the financial system risk management, asset allocation, personnel decisions, compensation, marketing, resolution, funding, and bailout. They aim to allocate credit across sectors and cycles. Now, we have vested quite a lot of hope in this process and an enormous amount of financial resources. Now, will the regulators deliver on this, become our superman fighting the evils of finance? Now, I am not optimistic, and these reasons were well stated by an LSE professor in 1945, Friedrich Hayek, who was then writing about the limitations of central planning. His argument was that the authorities do not and cannot possess enough information to achieve their objectives. Hence, central planning fails. In my view, the same logic applies equally to financial regulations. However, Suppose, for a second, that the regulators are indeed the masters of the complexity of the financial system. Then, of course, the logical conclusion must be to nationalize the whole system and let the regulators run it. After all, if they are, as they claim to be, effectively able to run almost every aspect of the system, well, those people should be the ones running it. Now, if that is not the case, it would be useful to start a discussion on what is it that the bankers do better than regulators and use that, the conclusion of that debate to determine the boundaries between banking and regulation. Now, 
I suspect the next crisis will happen because the measures we are now putting into place will ultimately not be effective. They will be undermined both by the narrow scope of the regulatory process and the lack of political support. Now, what the regulations will achieve, I think, is to drive risk-taking further underground so the next time we see the crisis, we'll, see, we'll hear yet again from the authorities, oops, we forgot to look there. Thanks very much, John. Well, I think um, you've all referred to um, uh, credit risk as, as being central to the risks uh, in the financial system that can, can lead to crises. Um, and I, I must say I'm very inclined to agree with that, and I think that, in fact, uh, in the last crisis, one of the issues was that the standards for underwriting uh, credit risk, particularly for residential mortgages, in the United States were much lower, actually, than they, they were in other countries and much lower than the regulators thought they were. And then those got into, built into uh, structured credit products, which were then bought by um, leveraged investors all over the world. So this is, a, this is, I agree, a crucial issue. But could I ask you one thing about that? Uh, it's, it's really a question about whether we're fighting the last war here. The financial system is extremely innovative. It was credit risk last time, but it was transmitted in a very different way through structured credit products that went off the balance sheets of the big banks. And so it seems to me that an issue here must be to better monitor the financial innovation process. It seems to be, it seems that the marginal cost of innovating by creating new financial products is quite low. And the incentives to do it is very often a regulatory arbitrage incentive. So I don't see too much in the regulatory environment that actually tries to monitor that. And maybe, Julia, I could ask you first, but then the others, whether you think that's an important uh, part of this, uh, of this story of, um, uh, of identifying emerging risks as they come up. Thank you. Um, fortunately, I do. Um, but in terms of, and I think it involves, sorry, involves a slightly um, different way about thinking about uh, and looking at markets from a sort of obsession perhaps with, with equity markets and the spot trade and et cetera, to, to thinking about markets in terms of risk distribution systems, not actually just resource allocation, but risk distribution um, and in that process, that it's not necessarily an exchange, it's, it can be more of a production chain, look like more like a production market. So you produce pack packages of products that, produce, that distribute risk in particular ways. You then uh, have a distribution mechanism for them, but they may get stuck, okay, in that process. You know, you may get stuck, so you get stuck in a warehouse. Um, and it really depends what happens at the end of your market uh, as to whether or not those things are going to be moved on or not. Um, and that's, that's obviously what we, we saw happen. But I think one of the, the things, therefore, that regulators need to do more of, and it's very difficult, is actually understand where is the risk gone. I know for banking supervisors now, it's going back to, you know, follow the money. Okay, where's, where's your money coming from? Let's go back to inventory management. Let's not look so much at systems and controls. Let's follow the money. Um, I think for financial regulators, it has to be follow the risk. Now, Actually, to do that requires perhaps different types of analysis, different types of skills. 
it also involves just knowing actually who's on the other side of a trade. Um, and as I say to my students, one of the most nerdy, geeky parts of the whole financial reform is probably seen to be the project which actually tries to systematize the identification system for every single financial institution and counterparty. So you get a consistent um, understanding of what the initials DB stand for when it's a counterparty to transaction. Is it Daxia Bank? Is it Deutsche Bank? You know, who is it? Why is that so important? Because unless you know that, you can't follow the risk. Now, actually trying to map that risk is incredibly difficult. Um, banks, actually talking about what, what can banks do better than regulators, I think one of the lessons from the crisis is, well, nobody did anything particularly well. Um, and banks themselves find it quite difficult, actually, to monitor risks. Their IT systems don't join up. They don't necessarily talk to one another. And so for a regulator to be able to do that on the very dynamic, volatile basis on which, which risk um, moves in the market, um, I think is quite critical. I think the other thing which is not really yet understood is at any particular moment in time, if the music were to stop and all those risks were to crystallize, exactly what would the impact be? Um, unless you know where the risk is lying, uh, unless you know exactly how the setting and all right, uh, it set off and netting is going to work, then it's actually very difficult to know that. And I think we're a long, long way from actually understanding really what are those patterns of distribution uh, of risk across the global system. And when the music were to stop at a particular one time, what would that actually mean in terms of risk crystallization? Thanks, Julia. Charles or, or uh, uh, John, any comments you'd like to add to that, Charles? Um, yeah. Um, first of all, uh, the most egregious failure of being able to assess credit risk was actually not so much housing in America uh, as peripheral sovereign debt in Europe, where I'm there was the general assumption by everybody that the peripheral sovereigns were riskless. It was shown to be I'm just way off. Um, next, the problem about it looking at innovation. Now, the problem here is that any instrument which can be used to hedge can also be used to speculate. And usually these innovations come out as initially as hedging instruments. And I can remember when CDS, credit default swap, instruments first came out. And the idea was that a bank which concentrated its lending in a small area because that's where it had the information could effectively diversify its overall position by using credit default swaps. And again, securitization initially was treated as a way of uh, hedging positions rather than of taking speculative positions. Problem is that anything that is used as a hedge can also be used subsequently uh, as speculation. And you actually can't very often tell. I mean, take, for example, the London Whale. Uh, which was a huge loss. That was intended to be a hedge, but it was a hedge that went wrong. And most crises, and here I'm making an assertion which may or may not be right, a, a very large number of crises arise as a result of people who have unhedged long positions, particularly in a cross-border investment, who suddenly realize that there's a risk and rush to hedge. And by simultaneously rushing to hedge, a previously unhedged long position actually drive the currency or whatever the country uh, or the spread or whatever uh, into a crisis. I, it is extraordinarily difficult 
to distinguish a hedge from a speculation. And that makes life really very hard indeed. And it makes it very hard indeed to actually tell whether an innovation... Almost any financial innovation can be used for good, but it can also be used for ill. It's a question of what the purpose of the exercise is. And you can't tell if you're a regulator what the purpose has been. How do you look inside the minds of the people who are operating in these banks? In a sense, that's what John has been saying. You don't, as a regulator, you don't have that kind of information. Thanks, Charles. John, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, so the one LSE graduate who went on to do quite well for himself, Paul Walker, had at least the most entertaining take on financial innovation of everybody. I may not agree, agree with it, but he said that the only financial innovation he's ever seen that is socially useful is the ATM machine. <laughs> and then he added that the only purpose of financial innovation is to create rent for those who design it. And we, I, There's a lot of truth in that, but just to add to, to, to Charles' point, of course, it is practically impossible to ban financial innovation or because, because banks will always find a way to take risk somewhere. And, and, like, and like I said, they will just read the regulations as a manual for where to take risk. That said, I think focusing on financial innovation is looking in the wrong way. This crisis, and no crisis, no crisis as, as far as I know, has happened because of financial instruments or that the crisis happened because of old favorites, SME lending and, and, and sovereigns and the like, and real estate. They don't happen because of, of financial innovation. So I, th- I think if the regulators want to, want, to, want to focus their attention, they should focus it on the old classics. Well, thanks. for Let me take up this point about uh, credit risk and, and the sovereigns that, that, that you pointed out, Charles. I mean, if we look at... Um, at uh, the Eurozone, I mean, the issue there was that it was a regulatory rule that the sovereigns had zero credit risk. Now, if you're a bank and you're investing in your own sovereign, you, you really, in a sense, are going to ignore the, uh, the credit risk there. And, and in fact, the long-term uh, refinancing operations that were I can't remember when they were, 2011 or 2012, were uh, uh, operations that were done by the regulatory authorities, by the ECB, intended to allow the banks to do carry trades by getting this refinancing and putting it into into sovereign credit. So are you really saying that it was the regulatory system that was at fault in the European uh, financial crisis rather than Um, the bank's risk management? In some part. Um, When these regulatory systems were being put in operations, um, the Americans at that time and the Basel Committee in Banking Supervision had a much better idea. And the American idea was that any bank which is lending to its or holding assets related to its own sovereign should be allowed to treat that as riskless. The argument there was, it wasn't so much that it was riskless, but if the sovereign went down, there was no way on earth that the bank situated in that country would be in other than the most terrible trouble. So you might as well treat it as riskless. But the Americans wanted to treat uh, holding the sovereigns of any other country by a bank according to a risk rating. 
And the Europeans at the time said no. Uh, you know, all European countries are equally wonderful and equally riskless. And the Europeans, because they dominated in the total numbers uh, in the Basel Committee and Banking Supervision, as they dominated in the IMF, got their way. Um, and I think the European position was wrong. Uh, I think it has been proved to be wrong. And if we'd uh, adopted the American approach, we'd have done much better. Thank you, Charles. Let me just broaden this out because there's, a, there's one elephant in the room that we, we haven't referred to yet, and that is the degree of consistency between macroeconomic policy and, um, and fin financial regulatory policy. A lot of people would argue that over the period since uh, 2008, what has happened is that the regulatory reforms have uh, encouraged us to drive down the street with uh, both feet on the brake, and the central banks, by providing tremendous amounts of liquidity, have encouraged us to, in terms of, of uh, taking risk, to put our both feet on the accelerator. So that that's not a consistent mix of macroeconomic policy and macroprudential policy. Now, that's apparently uh, about to be unwound uh, gradually. But is that a risk that goes forward that could come back to haunt us uh, uh, at the time that the, the next crisis uh, is imminent? John, maybe you could take that, and then we'll go back to I think I'll pass colleagues. that on to Charles. This is exactly his domain. <laughs> you will note that if you try and drive with one foot on the brake and another foot on the accelerator, you tend to get into a terrible skid. And that, I think, is roughly what, in fact, has actually happened. And I noted there was a speech by Mark Carney when he made at Davos uh, last week uh, on which he noted with enthusiasm uh, that the regulators had managed to raise the equity capital requirements of big banks over the last five years by seven times, a multiple of seven. Now, if you're going to ask large banks, and large banks take up the majority of the banking system, to increase their equity ratio by a factor of seven at a time when markets are extremely unwilling to accept new equity issues. And any CEO of a bank which makes a lot of these equity issues is going to find that his equity price and his position with his shareholders is going to get into real trouble. That is a straightforward recipe uh, for the kind of deleveraging that has tended to hold back the, um, uh, the rate of growth uh, of the economy. Now, I'm not saying that banks didn't need a lot more equity. They did. They entered 2007, 2008 with very, with very low uh, equity and massively excessive leverage. But what we should have done uh, was to follow again the American example. Well, what the Americans did was they looked at their banks, they saw those that didn't have enough equity, and they force-fed them with equity from the public purse. Now, if you like to call that bailout, so be it. Though actually nobody paid a penny's worth extra of tax. Because the, the provision of additional equity from the government to these banks was associated with sufficiently tough terms in terms of you cannot pay out dividends and you cannot increase bonuses until you've paid it back, 
that it made the banks extremely keen so to do. And they virtually all have done that and added in terms that have actually benefited the public purse. Partly because of, in my view, a completely sort of witch hunt about bailouts and how awful that's been. The Europeans have completely failed to do that, with the result that they have not yet found a mechanism for recapitalizing the banking system that has worked, and we still haven't got one in Europe. The banking sectors in Europe are still, in many cases, significantly undercapitalized, and because of the failure of the European Banking Union negotiations to come up with sensible ways of undertaking recapitalization, the European banking system, uh, out, primarily outside of the UK, in the, in the continent, is going to be very weak in holding back the continental economy uh, for at least a year or two more. Thank you, Charles. Julia, would you like to come in here? I mean, I think just to, to um, build on that, and I think one of, the, one of the issues in financial regulation and trying to manage this tension between economic growth and macroeconomic policy and macroprudential uh, policy and microprudential policy is that governments aren't disinterested players in the financial markets. Um, they regulate the markets, but they're also part of the markets, and they need the markets. So they're part of the markets because they themselves are players. They issue sovereign debt. It is absolutely in their interest that that sovereign debt should be very, very attractive for people to buy. Um, as, as John said very um, accurately, any what looks like a set of rules for regulators is actually an incentive structure for banks. And so you don't have disinterested uh, regulation of financial markets. And I think the, the risk-weighting of sovereign debt is an absolutely classic example of where you have politicization of regulation in favor of the states who are themselves in the market. States also obviously need the markets. They need their own public financing, but they need them for the achievement of their own wider uh, policies. And that's where you have the tensions arise. So at the same time, we've seen this in the UK. It goes back to Charles's point about nobody's actually really getting to grips with the the credit financing of housing. Why not? Because if you're in the UK and other countries, then actually people being able to own their own home is a political mandate that every single political party owns up to. So on the one hand, we have a need apparently to clamp down on banks and a need to shore up equity. And on the other hand, we have helped buy scheme. So we have, you have political tensions which are going to be cutting across. But I think the, the real thing that's also happened has been the politicization of financial supervision. I think you see this very strongly in the Euro Euro European area. I think you see it actually even within the UK, despite kind of a tradition of independent regulators. So scenario testing, scenario analysis, stress testing. You know, no government wants their prudential regulator to come up with a stress test that says there's a bigger hole in a bank's balance sheet than actually that government knows how it can fill. So in other words, the, the answer of the stress test is politically set in advance of the test being done. Um, we saw that in 2010 with SEB stroke EBA. EBA, who's the European Banking Authority, is trying to gain a little bit more distance. But you still see the tension between the two when you have the European Central Bank, for example, wanting to weigh in on you know, risk weighting of assets. And you have the European Banking Authority trying to hold a little bit firmer line over actually what bank, kind of bank, bank, cap, bank capital is needed. So the politicization of financial supervision 
at right down at that very micro level means that those political tensions and failures that Charles was talking about before aren't only manifest at the macro level in terms of actually how to resolve a crisis, and again we see that in the Eurozone with you know, the reluctance to have any kind of fiscal transfers between members of the, the Eurozone, but it comes right down into the politicisation of supervision itself, and that, that can't be healthy. I think this, you know, this, this issue of um, recapitalization of the banks and how it was done in the United States relative to the way it was done in Europe is a, is a very important one that, that, that you've raised. One point that you haven't referred to, which I believe is, is almost the most important point of this, actually, is that it was done on the basis in the United States of what came to be called a supervisory capital assessment program. So for the first time in early 2009, the U.S. uh, authorities required the 19 largest banks to do a stress test in which, uh, to the greatest extent possible, the asset side of the balance sheet was valued consistently across the institutions. Now, it seems to me that in a, you know, in a financial crisis, it's the ordinal ranking of, um, of solvency that's really important. Whoever is on the bottom is pretty likely to fail. And so that was the first time that, uh, that the authorities really, I think, had a vision, which they had not had at the time of Lehman Brothers, of just how big the insolvency holes were in one institution relative to the others. And this gave a lot more power in forcing them to recapitalize. So I think this issue of asset valuation and consistent asset valuations across institutions and even across jurisdictions is a very, very important element of that story. I don't know whether anybody would like to add anything to that. There is one thing I'm missing in those stress tests, and some people have been proposing an improvement, which is that, okay, you can have, it is definitely an improvement to have a consistent valuation. However, we also have to take into account that the financial institutes are interacting with each other. And if, when they start getting difficult, they start selling the same assets, they start buying the same assets. So if you want to do a proper stress test, it's not enough to have consistent valuation. You also have to take into account how the interaction of the institutions affects asset values either going up or going down. And, of course, if a very simple way this can happen is if prices fall, then volatility increase. That means the risk is higher. That means you have to dispose of risky assets. That means prices fall more and get this feedback loop. And we get assets, banks can't hold, increasingly can't hold the same type of assets. And that is one key element of how fundamentally you get into crisis. And there on consistency, while it is important to get consistency on the valuation, it is also equally important not to get consistency on the risk assessments. And I think that is one area where both the Basel Committee and the European Banking Authority are not doing the right thing, because the obvious worry is the following one. We take a group of banks, we give them the same portfolio, they, the, these banks, they look at risks in very different ways. One bank says the volatility of this asset is one. The other bank says volatility is two. Well, one of them must be wrong in this worldview, and therefore we must tell banks they have to get the same assessment of risk across all assets. And I think that is fundamentally wrong. It is, 
The reason is, if everybody sees the world in the same way, everybody reacts to the world in the same way, everybody reacts to shocks in the same way, and instead you want a shock to come to the system, you want someone to say, well, maybe this is not that risky, I'm going to buy this stuff. You want someone else to say, this is highly risky, I'm going to sell it. On balance, they average out. If everybody sees the world in the same risky way, sees the risk in the same way, you will amplify prices going up, and you will amplify prices going down. You will increase pro-cyclicality, and will make a crisis deeper. So this has to be done in the right way. On the valuation side, if you take into account interaction between institutions, yes, but not on the risk assessment side. I think that's a very important point. Uh, Charles or Julia, anything you'd like to add to that? I'm, John is, of course, completely right, but I do think that the, the American stress tests were a major step in the right direction, and I think both the U.S. and, indeed, the world owes a great deal to Tim Geithner, who really pushed that through. Um, equally, I think that the shift uh, of uh, supervision from the nation states in the Eurozone to the ECB again, is a major step in the right direction. And having the ECB uh, effectively run the asset quality review and the stress tests is desirable. What I find deplorable is the uh, failure to have, if you like, an appropriate fiscal backstop for dealing with the recapitalization that the stress tests will almost certainly actually reveal. Um, And finally, relating again to what John said, uh, there's also, I think, a problem about the use of accountancy because everyone tends to use mark-to-market accounting, and I think that that's quite wrong for regulators. What the regulators need to know is what an asset would be valued at if there really was a major crisis. And there's a very good... Uh, American physicist now working at Oxford called Doyne Farmer, who has suggested that what regulators ought to do is instead of using mark-to-market for valuation uh, of assets on a bank's book, they ought to use mark-to-crisis. In other words, what would that asset be worth if there was a crisis and people started to try and sell it uh, fairly indiscriminately in the way that John was talking about? Julia, anything you'd like to add? I, you know, I'd like to come in uh, on this, Charles, because I think there, uh, there, there's, a, there's a very important point here, which is that um, the way that leveraged investors will behave under stress is and should be quite different from the way that unleveraged real money investors behave in a situation of stress. Um, In a situation of stress, leveraged investors, because the prices of, because they don't hold very much capital relative to their total assets and the value of their assets is going down, they have to sell assets. That's very likely to drive asset prices down relative to a reasonable medium term assessment of their present discounted value. There has to be, in order for the system to correct itself, there has to be another sector which can buy those assets uh, and and has an interest in buying those assets because they are undervalued. There wasn't really much of that that happened last time. And it's a little bit surprising because we have the household sector, we have the pension funds, we have sovereign wealth funds, we have... um, 
uh, insurance and reinsurance companies. These are all institutions that should have an interest in buying up assets when they're cheap and therefore reducing the degree of negative overshooting that would otherwise occur. Why didn't that happen, and is there a way of making it better? Well, there is one, one input into this, which is that why, was, why is there no buyer of last resort, if you will? I always think about what I, con what I consider the first modern hedge fund manager, Baron Rothschild in the, in, in the 1700s, who said the best time to buy property is in the middle of a civil war. So he simultaneously benefits himself, but he also benefits society by putting floor onto prices. One reason why we get less of a buyer of last resort is because of regulations that stipulate you can't hold too much risk. So if, if, if everybody is, if, if you tell every market participants your risk cannot increase, and then in a normal state of the world you hold risk up to a certain level, and the crisis event happen, those natural buyers are not able to increase the positions and buy in, in those situations. That applies to banks. And now with insurance companies, with the market-based accounting rules, like insolvency 2, et cetera, it also matters, and quite possibly with many of the sovereign wealth funds as well. So it is, the, it is exactly the increased prevalence of risk-based regulation. And, 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 and there's a fallacy of composition here, because if you try to make everybody well-behaved, if you say every, every single participant in the banking system has to behave in a way that prevents that institution from blowing up, i.e. holding too much risk. Perversely, you make the system more unstable, you increase the incidence of financial risk, because it is the very act of self-preservation that makes financial institutions act in a way that amplifies financial crisis. Thank you, John. Julia? Um, I, I completely agree with that. I think the, the other thing to, to think about is, well, who are your, your buyers? And as John said, well, you've got insurance companies you've got uh, a flight to, to safety there. Pension funds, their mandates will probably prevent them from, from holding uh, various different types of instrument, and, and obviously the market-based accounting coming in there through their own regulation will inhibit them. And there's a need, in a way, for regulators to realise that actually there's a, there's a need for a kind of pressure release valve to enable somebody to act as a buyer for last resort so that there, there can be people out there who are... Uh, allowed to take what seem to be excessive risks during time of crisis, because otherwise what you end up with is where we've been, which is your government ends up as being your, your buyer of last resort, and then we've, we're back into that, um, that nexus again, uh, being trying to broken. So I think the, the, you know, the, the increased look at uh, hedge funds or alternative funds in terms of their capital uh, requirements, again, their safety requirements, as uh, just to, to really reiterate what John said, you have, you have a danger, actually, that you, your pressure is building up and you've got nowhere where that can go. Um, of course, we, do, we have had buyers of last resort. The, the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet's gone from $800 billion, um, in, uh, in July of um, 2009, I think it was, to, what is it now, $3.8 trillion? Uh, so that's a yeah, fair a amount. And, and, and we've seen the same thing, of course, with the ECB and, and the Bank of Japan. So I think that that has been an important element, although it's obvious, as Charles pointed out, that in a multinational uh, monetary system without a single fiscal authority, it's the fiscal authority always 
that really underpins the monetary system. And, of course, the fundamental uh, inconsistency in the Eurozone system is that 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 doesn't exist, and that has caused certainly caused a lot of problems. I'd like to, I'm going to turn uh, the uh, floor to the audience in a minute, but we haven't really talked too much about uh, macroprudential regulation as yet, and I'm wondering what you you see is the structure of that. When we think about it, it must be quite important that changes in risk concentrations in sectors of the economy, changes in the amount of um, aggregate leverage in the financial system as a whole are um, very important variables in determining the vulnerability of the system. And so those vulnerabilities should be priced into certain instruments and priced into the valuations of certain financial institutions. But if the private sector can't see those risks, then it can't price them. So uh, we know that one of the jobs that the macroprudential regulators say they're going to do is to collect um, big data so that they know not only the on-balance sheet positions but the consolidated off-balance sheet positions of every institution. Uh, I guess my question is, do... Uh, do, do we leave it at that? Do they then tell us where the vulnerabilities are? Or should they be uh, thinking in terms of publishing at least aggregative data on um, things that measure risk concentrations in the broader financial system so that it can be priced by the market and gives an incentive, a market incentive to the private sector to reduce and control those risks? Let me open it up to all three of you. I don't know anyone the, wants to take that. John? I always find, it, find this term big data quite fascinating, and it's one of the most misunderstood terms. Now, just a little bit of context here. Big data is created, is a term that originates from, say, a big supermarket that, is decided, that, that sees people coming and buying products every day. They have billions and billions and billions of observations, and they're trying to model buying habits or Google uses that to predict your searches or whatever. So big data is, is consumer companies who own the data they have. They created the data. They know how it's generated. All they're trying to do is to model it, to gain information about the clients. Then that's how the term originated. That's where all the technology is. That's where all the IT is, all the computer scientists are. This does not translate into the banking space. And, 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 and trying to... Talking about big data in, in, in central banking, I think, really does miss the point. The problem, the data problem the central bankers have is very different. All the data is created by an infinite number of different institutions with different IT systems, with different data structures. Uh, they created data for their own benefits. Then, the, then you have to aggregate that across all, the, all these institutions into some coherent mass and then make sense of it. The it's, it's a much, much more complicated problem, and the authorities are not up to the task. I don't, think, I don't think anybody is up to the task, and therefore try to somehow use big data techniques to somehow take all the data generated by the financial system and somehow map that onto allocation of credit across cycles or across industries or whatever is making exactly the same mistake as us. 
as Hayek did in the quote I gave in my talk from 1945 when he's talking about, talking about central plannings. The authorities cannot have the necessary information, and if they try to do so, they will end up making too many mistakes. So that is... Uh, I, Trying to do what you, what you describe, I think, is not going to be successful. Well, let me put the question another way. What should macroprudential regulation do? John, you've come near to saying that you don't need it. I, I, I'm not sure I would, I would agree with that position. But, but uh, Charles and Julia, what should is, – is macroprudential regulation – a crucial element going forward in principle that could help to reduce vulnerabilities, uh, make a crisis, crisis less likely, and if it occurs, um, control it in a way that makes it less damaging or not? And if so, how? Macroprudential is meant to be counter-cyclical. I, but it, its working is, is a bit dubious. You see, the thing is that and after all, we're, we're now, hopefully towards the end of, really a very severe recession depression. And if macroprudential had been utilized, it should have sort of been expansionary. But the severe recession depression occurred in some part because the banks were too fragile. So consequently, everybody who deals with micropro says you must have more capital, you must have more liquidity, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that, etc., etc., etc. So that the banks inevitably, for the reasons I was indicating, have been deleveraging, making, if you like, the whole process more long drawn out and worse. Now, how can you deal with that with macro proof? It's very, very difficult. There are some ways of doing it. And I think the funding for lending scheme that was tried out in this country is actually not a bad approach. I also happen to think that help to buy would, was and is a good idea, but it should have been introduced about two, or two years earlier. Um, moreover, I think that there is a potential advantage in, in, in help to buy because the, the crucial sort of uh, boom bust is on this interconnection between property um, and credit. And if you're going to deal with that, what you've really got to do is you've got to be prepared to do uh, varying the loan-to-value and the loan-to-income ratios. Now, initially, the Financial Policy Committee of the Bank of England refused even to ask Parliament for powers to do that because they thought that raising uh, LTVs and LTIs in a boom would be politically unacceptable, and they didn't want to endanger their independence by doing that. Now, one of the things that the help to buy has actually led to is because of the criticism that it has brought with it, that it may just generate another housing boom, it has meant that in order, in a sense, to protect himself, the Chancellor, George Osborne, has now required the FPC of the Bank of England to actually discuss the parameters in help to buy. And that means that the Bank of England's FPC is actually being forced by outside, and in this case political pressure, to do what it always should have done, 
which is to use the macroprudential instruments, hopefully in a countercyclical manner, to judge what the parameters on all these schemes should be and to toughen up the parameters when the economy and uh, asset and housing prices and credit are rising much faster and to relax the parameters when the situation gets weaker. So that I largely by happenstance, uh, a somewhat unwilling financial policy committee has actually been pressurized into doing what it should always have done anyhow, and that is a unintended but beneficial consequence uh, of the help to buy scheme. Thank you, Charles Joya. Um, I think one of the interesting things about macroprudential supervision is it makes uh, the distributional consequences of central banks' decisions much clearer than uh, monetary policy. So monetary policy, the distributional consequences of monetary policy are not... I mean, they, they, can be, they can be seen, but they stark and come back to the politicisation around, for example, a loan-to-value, a loan-to-income scheme is something that people understand, okay, because it hits how much they can borrow, whether they can buy that house. And I think the dynamics of people's behaviour in the context of equity markets and buying to invest is very different from the dynamics of the behaviour in credit markets and wanting to borrow. People will connive in fraud uh, to enable them to borrow more than they actually are able to pay. It's very rare that they will connive in fraud to uh, uh, lend to, to invest in something which they know uh, is not going to work out to their advantage. So people's um, behaviour is very different, I think, in credit markets. I think that's something that needs to be taken into account. The role of leverage, not just in the, uh, the wholesale markets, but in terms of the, the retail markets and people's individual consumer behaviour, I think, is, is something that needs to be borne in mind. I think one of the other issues is actually just spillover effects. Um, then the implications for of one jurisdiction's macroprudential policy and even microprudential policy... Uh, because of the nature of banks, because of the nature of banking transactions, uh, can have negative spillover effects into jurisdictions where those banks are operating. Um, and I think you can see the potential for this in relation to both the microprudential, when, for example, from the point of view of a home regulator or lead regulator, it may make sense to impose a countercyclical buffer um, across the bank. Now, that will then involve negotiations with um, supervisors in individual jurisdictions where that bank is operating. Now, it may be that for the home bank, that jurisdiction is not particularly important for the bank itself, but it's very important as far as that local jurisdiction is concerned. And so policies which are imposed on banks by either for microprudential or macroprudential reasons, which cause them to withhold credit, uh, which call them to deleverage, which cause them to act in particular ways, uh, will have impl- impacts on that jurisdiction itself, but also those negative spillover effects um, into other countries is something which I don't think is necessarily always uh, recognised. And I think we've, we've seen that in relation to the peripheral countries just within the EU. Um, so I think that's another aspect of the, uh, of the whole uh, complica- complexity around using macroprudential supervision. Thanks, Julia. Now I'm going to open it up for questions from the audience. And I would... Uh, very much under, underscore the word questions. If you have a, a, a view that differs from the speakers here, please come to the reception and uh, you can give them to them then. But for now, let's keep the que- questions uh, concise uh, for the speakers up, up, up here on the stage. We have microphones both on this floor and up in the balcony. 
So who would like to ask the first question? They're in the back uh, of the... Yeah, no, I um, would have two questions. The first one is that it was mentioned that there's a great amount of concentration in the uh, banking markets probably all around the world. Uh, does that mean we maybe need more competition there and that maybe the big institutions have to be broken up in smaller ones? Um, and my second question uh, would be, How much do you think um, financial markets produce a real economic gain, or how much are there maybe zero-sum gains that just redistribute um, gains that were um, produced by others? Two very good questions. Concentration uh, in banking, it's certainly an issue. Concentrations increased steadily, mostly by, uh, by acquisitions for 30 years now. And uh, what's the net value added, true value added, social value added of the financial system? Um, let's start with concentration in banking. Would anyone like to take that on? No, sure. Go ahead, John. Now, I fully agree with you that the banking system is, is too concentrated, but we have to at least one important reason, and one perverse outcome of this crisis is that the banking system is a lot more concentrated now than it used to be. And one really perverse aspect of all these financial regulations is something that I think should be said more often. Who really likes complex, intrusive financial regulations? The big banks. Because the bigger the bank is, the better understanding they have of the regulations, and all the smaller competitors are at a competitive disadvantage. And therefore, complex, intrusive regulations, they benefit the large incumbents at the expense of the smaller ones. So at the same time you call for more regulation, you're also implicitly calling for more, more concentration, less, less, less competition in the banking system. Thanks very much, John. Um, on concentration, I don't, perhaps the first time this evening, agree with John. Um, I don't think that, they, for most purposes, I don't think there is excess concentration. If you take a large company, a large company can go to any bank, I, and there are probably tens, if not hundreds, in the city of London, and they can borrow from any of them. If you're an ordinary depositor, you've got the whole range through the Internet, Electronics will give you plenty of competition. Last time I looked at it, which was some time ago, there was something like about three to 500 different kinds of mortgages that anyone could take. And if, you're, if you're an ordinary, if you're trying to borrow to buy a house, there's masses of alternative competition. The one area where there is concern about competition is SMEs. But that is always going to be a problem, whatever the structure of your banking is, because the SME problem is that you are risky and people don't have enough information on you. And getting information is a very time-consuming exercise. And by the time a, you as an SME have got a decent working relationship with a bank, both you and the bank have spent a hell of a lot of time and effort And that means that there is an enormous inbuilt amount of pricing power for whichever bank is lending to that SME. And you can have 100 banks or you could have four banks and it would be exactly the same. Now, the, the, the question of social value uh, is a, a difficult one. It's also tied up with accounting. 
I think a whole a lot of the estimates about the the profitability uh, and the value added of the banking system in virtually every country were probably misstated uh, and didn't take enough account. For, take one very simple example of risk. Um, and uh, I think that there is a reasonable case that there probably was uh, an excess growth of the financial system uh, prior to uh, 2007, which is currently being uh, reversed. But if you take the much longer run, the kind of studies that people like Ross Levine have done have suggested that there is a strong positive relationship uh, between the development of the financial system and the development of the real economy, which I think in the long run holds. But in the short run, what occurred between, shall we say, 2000 and 2007 is not something that I think was necessarily beneficial. Thanks, Charles. Julia, did you want to add anything to that? Well, I'll leave it to Charles to tell me what the social value of, of, of for the financial system is. But I just think in relation to, to competition, I'm not sure we ever know when we've got an optimal level of competition. And I think one of the interesting things to think about is, is even if we had much more competition within the market, would people switch? One of the really interesting pieces of work that's been done both in the context of utility companies, been done in the context of banks, is why on earth don't people switch products even when there are competitive products out there in the market? Um, and so I think one of the uh, assumptions that if we had competition, you'd get more people switching, you'd get more people choosing, um, it hasn't quite worked out that way. So I think that, that would also need to be addressed as well. There's a wonderful statistic out there which indicates that people are more likely to change their partner than they are to change their <laughs> bank. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. The next question is in the second row of the balcony. Thank you. Um, my name is Constantin Müller. I'm a student from Odding Lake College, and I have a question for Dr. Danielson. Uh, you mentioned the possibility of nationalizing the regulations, but how effective can nationalized regula regulation be in a, in a globalized economy, especially with growing developing countries? Well, I had the experience of having grown up in a country where the government owned the entire financial system. And I can, I can assure you that was not a pleasant experience. I do, I do remember if you had to get a bank loan, you had to show your party affiliation because the allocation of credit was determined based on which party you belonged to. And oftentimes you had to go to the minister or senior party official. And, and this was in a European democracy, member of NATO, member of OECD. If and I, we've been talking about the politicization of the regulatory process. Can you imagine if the government runs the banks? That will be the mother of all corruptive processes. Capital will be allocated to the worst places, and everybody will be worse off except the politicians who sit on the boards. So I think the worst possible outcomes is to nationalize the system. My point was different. My point was that Given the claims made by the regulators for what they aim to deliver, and they really want to get into every single aspect of the system, and now we were just talking about the macroprudential dom domain, which is all about uh, allocation of capital across sectors and across time. If the authorities have the big data to be able to do that, 
That, of course, the logical conclusion is to let the authorities also run the banking system. And then, therefore, there is, a, and I think that would be the worst possible outcome, but I think we do need to discuss what is the actual value provided by the banks compared to the value provided by the authorities, and where does the regulatory process end and where does the banking begin? And I don't, th- I don't think we've found that. Thanks, John. Uh, up here in the middle of the balcony. Thank you. One topic that hasn't been discussed very much is uh, that of fraud and dishonesty. And in the very in the aftermath of the crisis, we've seen a lot of dishonest behaviour exposed. Whether that's rating agencies with uh, you know, conflicting incentives, whether that's in the in the mortgage lending business, which I think Professor Blank actually did mention. How much of a factor was this kind of behaviour in the in causing the crisis itself, and how much? Uh, you know, how, how sure are we that it's no long that it's not going to be a significant factor in causing the next one? Excellent question, Julie. Do you want to start with that? Why not? Um, I think I think one of the the discussions about the causes of the crisis is going to be a, go on as long as the discussions about the causes of the First World War and the Second World War. It's going to be one of those things that that academics can chew over and everybody else can chew over for an awfully long time to come and many trees will no doubt be destroyed in the process of, of printing all those erudite uh, analyses. But I think, the, you know, obviously fraud did have a, a contributory role to play in the, uh, the U.S. credit market and the U.S. residential mortgage market. You know, some of the, the horror stories you hear from those on the ground in terms of, um, you know, companies just being set up to provide people with credit ratings, um, you know, invidious practices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Fraud is, as, as they say, the poor, poor is always going to be with us. Now, exactly how much of a factor it played a role. Um, I wouldn't like to, to weight it and say it was all down to fraud. Certainly, certainly couldn't say that. Can we ever be sure that fraud is not going to happen? Absolutely not at all. This is money. Um, fraud happens around money. Um, the, I think the interesting thing is to look at the dynamics of fraud, and to look at the social patterns of relationships in which um, fraud arises, how people are connected, um, and to look at the manipulation by groups of the, by the fraudsters themselves. Um, so if you look at Madoff, for example, you have very close social circle, you have trading on reputation, you have an unwillingness to question because of the political and social capital of the fraudster themselves. Um, if you look at the dynamics of fraud at a more micro level, you have fraudsters, and it's quite a significant issue in, in uh, North America about penetration of, re- of religious groups <coughs> by fraudsters. So using existing social circles, building trust, and thereby, you know, um, again, stopping the questioning that might, might otherwise occur. I think some of the other work which has been done, I only know one regulator that's done it, um, it would be, I think, good to, to see more, is to look at the victims of fraud. Why did they fall for this particular fraud? Why did they invest? Um, what led to that? So you've got fraud in, in those contexts in relation to investors, and then you've got fraud in the, the compilation of indices. And I think one of the reasons why people didn't necessarily look for fraud in, for example, a compilation of indices is comes down to the way in which markets are viewed 
perhaps by mainly by economists, dare I say, on such a panel, um, seeing prices as the natural outcome of interactions between buyers and sellers. Whereas, in fact, in indices, it's not, the nat- it's not the outcome of interactions between buyers and sellers. It's a series of estimates put forward by people who have very, very strong incentives to not necessarily behave in the way that the, the wider public market uh, would want them to behave. So social relationships, patterns, and incentives, um, I think, are key to understanding how fraud uh, is perpetrated and why it goes undetected for so long. A uh, question here at the back of the main floor. What role, if any, do you think that regulators should have in uh, overseeing the sustainable actions of a financial institution? So whether it be bonuses or acquiring a bank, you know, think of the infamous ABN AMRO and whatever business decisions that they might be taking, do you think that regulators should have any role in that or completely left to the market? No, that's me. Okay. The, I think the APN AMRO RBS case is absolutely f- fascinating. Here are two badly run middle-level European banks who for like half a year end up being the world's biggest banks, and then, of course, all is going to go into collapse in, collapse in mystery. I mean, if the, if the authorities have a role, it is a role in preventing that. And both of these banks are very big. Their failure will impose very significant costs of their, of their countries, as they did, and that was a very clear case of the authorities being asleep. So that is ab- absolutely a very clear function of the authorities is, is to prevent such a merger. As to bonuses, you can, we can have a lot of opinions on bonuses. However, there is one thing I always find fascinating in, in that whole debate. There's a lot of assertions that bonuses cause more risk-taking there is not, as, as far as I can tell, there is no empirical evidence pointing to that. And, and that, so it's, it's all based on assertion. If you take the biggest banking crisis the world has ever seen, Japan, there's not a bonus in sight. If you take the biggest rogue trader, Kerval and Sok Shen, almost no bonuses. And we do know, of course, the very famous example that everybody is talking about nowadays about sanctions. In the Middle Ages, they used to execute people and still banks failed with alarming regularity. So while, and, and, of course, if, if, again, if you go to the 19th century, where we had even a lot bigger financial failures than we do now, no bonuses whatsoever. And everybody was uh, a no-limited and, and no liability corporations either. Everybody had very direct skin in the game, and still banks failed all over the place all the time. So the empirical evidence does not point to the fact that prohibiting bonuses uh, has any impact on risk-taking. And if you look at the discussion in the European Parliament last year and the words of Philip Lambert who spearheaded that, that was never the case. It was always about political. It was always political and not economic. I would, I would just add that there was yet another sort of protective layer that should have done something and didn't, and that was the, the, the bank's board. Um, and the the board of RBS at that time uh, consisted of people who, at any rate on paper, had more or less every qualification you could ever expect, as indeed that was true of the board of Enron. And one of the, the problems here is that um, you know, the, the efficient markets hypothesis, which is 
quite rightly come under severe attack as a result of what's happening. The efficient markets hypothesis led to the view uh, that a group of people, i.e. the board, because obviously one person uh, could have some fairly dotty ideas, that a group of qualified people like boards should not be prepared to undertake actions which ultimately would destroy their own institution. And Alan Greenspan, who was a fervent believer in the efficient markets hypothesis, uh, claimed after or said after the, the crisis, you know, I've discovered something's wrong with my theories. <laughs> um, but it is, it's not just the regulators. It's, it is the, the boards as well who need to be, you need to be concerned with why did they fail uh, to raise warning flags. Good point. Uh, I'm going to take two more questions. One is here and one is in the back uh, of the auditorium. Second row there. Does the panel think that interest rates rising in the next year or two combined with help to buy might cause a, a mini crash? Uh, my answer to that one would be no, because I think that over the next two years, if short-term rates go up, they will go up very, very gradually. And in this country, uh, the mortgage, almost or the great majority of mortgage contracts are based on adjustable rates, so they're related to short-term rates. The concern is much more, I think, at any rate among central bankers, that when short rates start going up, that markets will see a whole process of future short rate increases. So you might get a spike in long rates at the time when short rates are going up. So in America, where mortgages are much more based on long-term fixed payments, there's perhaps more danger of an increase in uh, interest rates as you begin to unwind the expansionary process, having damaging, being, having serious damages, and I think in this country. Thank you, Charles. Question at the back there. I was, I was just wondering to what extent you thought it was the difficulty of international cooperation and regulation between key states that made the situation worse, and what effect regulatory capture had in the situation as well. Thanks, Julia. Um, no, I think one of the one of the core difficulties is around international regulatory cooperation because you have uh, you've got conflicting pressures. On the one hand, you've got a, a kind of push to harmonisation um, because um, in t- in when you want to impose tougher regulation, then you want everybody to come with you because you don't want to be a kind of first mover disadvantage by imposing tougher regulation because business will just go elsewhere. So there's a push to for harmonisation to you know the famous level playing field, etc. But on the other hand, there's a push back down to the national level, which is related to fiscal protectionism, um, quite naturally, that governments know very much that it's their fiscal budgets that are on the line, should anything go wrong. Um, And that's a very strong driver to pull things back down to the national level. And so it's not uncommon to have agreements apparently signed at the uh, international level, and then everybody goes home and does exactly what they want. Um, I was reminded of a uh, a phrase by George Bernard Shaw actually in relation to women uh, recently which is that they listen very nicely and then go off and do what they please uh, and, uh, I think that kind of sums up global financial regulation actually in a way Thank you very much Well I think 
Yes, please uh, join me in thanking these speakers.